Hi, thanks for tuning in and welcome to the latest episode of Unspun, a podcast by Population. This week, we're going to talk about supply chain dynamics with Kim Vanderveert. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries. I'm Lauren Hill. I'm Catherine Tedrow. And I'm Danielle Arzaga. We're the founders of Population, a change agency blending the creative and strategic to embed an integrated approach to sustainability into brand, marketing, and business model strategy. We convene the much-needed conversations about systems change by centering stakeholders across the entire value chain, all the way from supply to demand, to co-create the solutions to the biggest sustainability challenges facing our industry. We're here today with Kim Vanderveert, the co-host of Manufactured, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Kim's many years of supply chain experience have made her an insightful critic of the fashion industry today. Her interviews on Manufactured ask the critical questions of all players throughout the supply chain. We're here today with Kim Vanderveert, the co-host of Manufactured, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Kim's many years of supply chain experience have made her an insightful critic of the fashion industry today. Her interviews on Manufactured ask the critical questions of all the players throughout the supply chain. Hi, Kim. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you have a really unique background from having studied human rights to your roles as uh, COO of the sustainable brand Tonle and a factory manager in Cambodia. How have these experiences led you to being a critic of the fashion supply chain? Yeah, I'll try and tell the story, the short version of the story. I guess the like one liner that I use to describe myself is like, you know, student of human rights turned factory garment factory manager turned sustainable fashion critic. But I mean, in a nutshell, like so as an undergrad, I studied social science. I did political science and international studies. And I went on to do a master's in human rights. And I thought I was going to go to law school and become a human rights lawyer. And in the end, decided that I wasn't really sure if law school was for me. And ended up, when I finished my master's degree, I was in London and it was 2010 And there weren't a lot of jobs to be had. And if there was one thing that my education had taught me, it was that, you know, doing good is a lot easier said than done. And people who set out with the intention to do good, you know, often inadvertently end up causing a lot of harm. My interest was always in global political economy, in supply chains, but in part because I was trying to figure out what my space was. And in part, because there weren't a lot of jobs, I ended up working for an organization, a social business that provides sexual and reproductive health services. And at the time, I sort of felt like that was, you know, providing sexual and reproductive health services, at least in my book, seemed like a fairly uncomplicated way of doing good, you know? So, and I was in their headquarters in really looking at like business systems and processes because there was an organization that provided these health services in in over 40 countries. So I did that for a while. And, but gradually these sort of thoughts about supply chains and 
global political economy started creeping back into my mind because I sort of felt like, well, for the first time I was participating really in the global economy as a consumer in the sense that I was had a job, I was earning some money. And I just felt like, you know, in my private life as a consumer, I was sort of participating, upholding, complicit in these economic systems, which in my professional life, like were marginalizing the very women to whom, you know, the organization that I worked for was trying to provide sexual and reproductive health services. And that sort of started to, you know, eat at me a bit. And I started to think of more and more, like, how could I transition back into, you know, issues, you know, supply chain stuff. And I did a lot of reading. I talked to a lot of people. And ultimately, I just felt like, despite everything that I had done, the the whole idea of production of a factory was such an abstraction to me. And supply chains, the idea of a supply chain was an abstraction to me. And, you know, ultimately the, the heart of the fashion industry's social and environmental impact is in production. And so eventually that led to me sort of quitting my job in London and moving to Cambodia with this vague idea that I would find a job in a garment factory. So I was in Cambodia for five years. And as you mentioned, I worked for two very different companies. And my experience while I was in Cambodia managing production was kind of like little by little, everything I thought I knew about how to do fashion responsibly was sort of undone. And little by little, I also found myself making decisions or doing things as a factory manager and the second, this was particularly in, in the second factory that I managed, which was producing primarily for the luxury eyewear industry. So for some of the world's biggest brands. And I found myself making decisions and doing things that my old self, the student of human rights, would have unequivocally condemned. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, I sort of have been trying to, you know, like on the one hand, my assumptions were, were undone. And I've been trying to sort of reconcile lived experience with also what I was taught and how I was taught to think about these issues. And, you know, in the summer of 2019, I was fortunate enough to go to the Sustainable Apparel Coalition meeting because we were members of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. And at that time, I was sort of starting to think about what I was going to do next because I never really became a factory manager like to be a factory manager. You know, I wasn't, I didn't aspire to continue to manage subsequently larger factories. It was always a window into a world that I felt I didn't understand. And I was sort of starting to get to a point where I felt like I understood it and I had to figure out how to use it. And I was struggling because I felt like I was very cognizant of the fact that I am not sort of your typical factory manager. I'm white, I'm female, I'm half American, half Dutch. In other words, I'm quote unquote Western. I'm a native English speaker, you know, all, all of these things. And so I, I sort of felt like, you know, it wasn't really my story to tell. But when I was at this Sustainable Apparel Coalition meeting, what I kind of realized, first of all, everyone that I met assumed that I worked for a brand. And then when I would say, oh, actually, I manage a garment factory in Cambodia, people would be like, people were so taken aback. People were so mm. surprised because I didn't, in people's imaginations, a factory manager is a male of color. And what I realized was that. Number one, I was invited into spaces, both formal and informal, that my manufacturing peers were not. 
And also that I could say things that were maybe a little bit more provocative and I was still given the benefit of the doubt. Mm. And so that was when I sort of started to think like, okay, maybe there is sort of like a place for me here or a way that I can contribute to this. And maybe there is like, you know, I'd felt before that supplier perspectives in the sustainable fashion conversation were underrepresented and misunderstood. But I, I started to sort of see like, how I might be able to do something about that or to advocate for this particular perspective in a way that sort of felt felt okay. <laughs> so that's what led me together with my co-host Jesse to start the manufactured podcast, which you know we really try and focus on featuring supply chain perspectives. That's fascinating. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> I'm curious too if you could elaborate a little more from your experience as someone who's managed factories, how the division of power kind of plays out on the ground from the facility perspective. Um, And we know that power is really skewed toward brands and the onus of, you know, like compliance against standards is placed on manufacturers. We're we're curious to hear a little bit more about your experience. Yeah. So I'm so glad you asked this because I think the word power is often like, what's the word? It feels abstract. It feels nebulous. You know, and and that was also part of what brought me to Cambodia because I was like, I kind of knew that that was the case and that power was distributed unequally across the supply chain, but I couldn't quite like, it was abstract. I couldn't quite like put it into concrete terms. Like, how does that actually play out? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, like a big part of how power is distributed across the, the fashion supply chain has to do with the distribution of financial risk. And Really, to put that in sort of simple terms, because even distribution of financial risk, I think, is a term that can seem abstract and that it's not really clear what that means. So I want to I want to sort of break that down. But like the first question that I always ask people is like, why don't brands do their own production? How did we end up with this model in the first place where brands are basically outsourcing the making of the products that are their lifeblood, you know? And a lot of times the answer focuses on, oh, late, you know, wages are cheaper elsewhere or, you know, the advent of technology or advanced, you know, communication systems or whatever made sort of these global production systems possible or advances in logistics made it, you know, possible and affordable. And I think that those things are all true and all part of the story. But I think like if you sort of peel all those things back and really zoom out, for me, the biggest reason why brands don't do their own production is because they're looking to minimize their financial risk. And what I mean by that is, you know, the biggest risk to anyone in the business of fashion, financial risk, I should say, is that your products don't sell right? That you make something that people don't want to buy. And so, and that you've invested all kinds of money in people and materials to make something that the market isn't interested in. And so like my take on this is that, you know, brands started to move their production overseas. Yes, because wages were cheaper, et cetera, et cetera. But also because somebody else is now fronting those costs. You know, the people making those products are no longer on your payroll. So if those products don't sell, they're not your problem. You know, if you buy, invest in tons of raw materials or whatever, and for whatever, and let's say they're all purple and the 
the color that happens to be popular is green, that you're not stuck with all this purple fabric. And so for me, like the sort of model production model that we have, where we have brands and we have suppliers as opposed to sort of a single entity has a lot to do with sort of passing that financial risk down. You know, the inventory is no longer on your books. The, you know, the people are no longer on your payroll, passing that down to somebody who really has neither the luxury of being able to negotiate or the cash reserves to be able to cope with it. And so like, for example, the factory that I managed, like the owner of that factory used to joke that we were a bank, not a manufacturer. And I just like want to break down the timeline a little bit, if if that's okay, of like when we had to front money for, for different things. So basically like what happens is we would get a forecast from the brands that we produced for. And a forecast is just like an estimate of what that brand thought that they were going to sell. It was not binding. It was not committed in any way. And we might get that six months out from when we were actually going to deliver the product when it wasn't a purchase order. So it was not a firm commitment. And based on that forecast, we would make decisions about how many people we were going to have on our staff and how much fabric we were going to buy. So to give you a sense of like the timeline, we would, so we were a factory in Cambodia and in Cambodia, there's almost no raw material production. So most of our raw materials came from China. And so we would place orders with our raw material suppliers in China about two months before we would receive the the actual raw materials. So they would have like a month to produce and then they'd have a month or let's say three weeks of, of transit time from China to Cambodia. And then we would pay them for those raw materials a month after receiving them. So, and then once we received those materials, we would usually have, that's usually around the time when a firm purchase order would come in, but not even always. It sometimes might come in later. And then we would produce the goods. And so then we would have about a month to produce those goods. And then we'd have about another month for those goods to basically be in a boat in transit to wherever their final destination was in Europe or in North America or whatever. And then for for our clients that we produced for, and they were (laughs) particularly tough, but we actually had that inventory that we produced sit in a warehouse, which we paid for, for up to three months. And they had three months to call off that stock. And it was only when that stock was called off that then there was actually like, we could invoice and we could get paid. So the amount of time, like between when we were making irreversible decisions about how many people to hire and how many materials to buy, and the time when we got paid was about six to nine months, depending on the situation. And even then, the thing is like, you've already sunk those costs, you've already produced those goods. And if the ownership doesn't transfer and the brand has basically no money on the line, no skin in the game up until the very last moment when they're sitting in a warehouse in Europe or North America waiting to be called off. And, you know, I mean, again, like different suppliers will have different arrangements. This was our situation. But if they have no skin in the game up until the very end, well, then in that six months, again, to go back to like the purple versus the green example, You know, if that product that you've made for them suddenly isn't selling as well as they hoped it might or as well as they thought it would, then like basically it's very easy for them to come up with reasons why they're going to refuse that inventory. And this is what Jessie has talked about also on the podcast because she worked for a third 
third-party quality inspection company. And she talked about how these inspection reports were basically like kind of used as insurance or leverage by brands to say, hey, actually there was a problem with the quality and that's why these products aren't selling. So we're going to refuse them or, you know, whatever. There's a lot of buybacks, right? Where you're actually asking the manufacturer to buy back. Well, not even buy it back because they still own it. Yeah. Right. And so it's very easy. But my, the point, I think, is it's very easy to refuse inventory and to come up with whatever reason for that when you have no money on the line. It doesn't cost you anything as the brand. And so, like, you know, for me, like that is, you know, when we talk about distribution of financial risk, it's like who has the skin in the game, you know, and who's fronting these costs. And that, I think, is a really big part of like how these these dynamics really really play out and if you say as a manufacturer well I don't want to do this or I want to be you know paid up front or you know I want to purchase price that's dependent on fluctuations in your forecast or something that would sort of redistribute that they'll say <laughs> sorry forget about go it somewhere go somewhere else, else. Yeah. yeah yeah I mean we we obviously know that the system is dysfunctional and has been for since the beginning of time. And uh, one of our questions was around holding brands, brands accountable. And we had brought up ethical trading initiatives, guide to buying responsibly, and the mutual agreements that are starting to emerge. Transformers just put out their eight ethical principles that you spoke to them about in your conversation recently. Are there other models or what do you see that it's going to take to hold brands accountable as an industry? Yeah, this is a good question. And I, I don't know if I totally have the answer. I mean, surely I don't. But I think, you know, there's sort of different layers to it. Because on the one hand, like if you look at these contracts themselves, you know, the contracts themselves often sort of are completely unfair and unjust. And so part of the work, I think, is even just like, you know, coming up with contracts between brands and suppliers that are a little bit more reasonable. And there was a really good report on this by the ECCHR called um, Farce Majeure, I think. And uh, it sort of like gave these examples of just how outrageous some of these contracts were in terms of like, you know, that a brand could refuse inventory at any moment for any reason. And so like, you know, but effectively what they were doing was totally legal. But let's say you sort of solve that piece of the puzzle. Then there's like the issue of dispute resolution, right? And I think one of the challenges that a lot of these suppliers face is that, you know, and just speaking from my own experience, I mean, we were small compared to some of these brands that we were working for. I mean, we, you know, a tiny fish. And so like, you know, to be able to, number one, even access legal representation in the countries where these contracts were being, you know, were like within the, you know, the jurisdiction was not uh, straightforward and it would have bankrupted us, you know, (laughs) even if, if we had sort of been able to do that. And so like some of the most interesting things I see happening now and the things that sort of give me the most hope are these accountability mechanisms that are supplier led So, for example, you know, Transformers Foundation, we talked to them on our show about they're setting up an ethical denim council, which is uh, really about arbitrating disputes between, you know, buyers and suppliers in a sort of more reasonable way. There's also the Star Network, which is um, a producer, a regional producer association 
which is working together with the International Apparel Federation and and they're supported also by uh, GIZ Fabric. And they're looking, they've come out, they've like these, this initiative, they've come out and sort of articulated their minimum standards on purchasing practices. And now they're looking at, okay, well, how do you implement that? And they're also looking and exploring different arbitration models. So I think those are, those are some of the more most interesting things that are happening <laughs> to your point about, or your question about like, you know, these models that really focus on improving purchasing practices and getting brands to change the way that they buy. I, I sort of have mixed feelings because on the one hand, I, I'm a big advocate of improved purchasing practices and sort of holding brands accountable to better purchasing practices. But I also have found myself increasingly frustrated because I feel like purchasing practices are the consequence. They're the result of an unequal distribution of financial risk. They are not the cause themselves. Like the reason that somebody can you know, negotiate a super low price that's maybe even below cost price is because those people are not on their payroll, you know, or or the reason why somebody can refuse inventory or cancel an order at the last minute is because they got no money on the line. Or the reason that, you know, you could eat into a, you know, lead time because of delays in product development or whatever is also, again, because those things aren't costing you anything as the brand. And so for me, like, you know, I am all for improved purchasing practices, but I just feel like there's sort of confusion uh, between sort of what's the symptom and, and what's the what's the root cause. And a lot of times I feel like when we talk about purchasing practices, we, we're talking about like, how do we fix these symptoms, but we're not fundamentally changing the incentives. SB 62 is holds both the contractor and the manufacturer responsible for wages and liabilities and damages. And that's getting a bunch of pushback from AAFA even right now as a representative of many brands, obviously. And it's just so interesting to see that so ingrained that mutual and shared financial risk, it just always hits a wall in the industry. Yeah. And you know, what's, what's crazy about that to me is that like, shared financial risk to me, like makes good business sense. And Mm -hmm. like what we saw with the pandemic was that like all these brands just had way, way, way too much inventory. Right. And that has to do with, again, like this six month timeline that I just described, because it's a lot easier to predict demand for tomorrow than it is to predict demand for six months from now or a year from now. Right. But for me, like overproduction is fundamentally and, and this, you know, whether like you're a sustainability person and you want to refer to it as overproduction or you're a business person and you're talking about it in terms of having inventory on your books. But like either way, it's it's very much to me, at least a product of this unequal distribution of financial risk, because, you know, as a factory manager, and this is one of the things that like frustrates me to no end as a factory manager, like the thing that affected my costs and my bottom line more than anything else was like how many pieces I sold. And what I mean by that is like, okay, to give a very simple example, if you have like, you've already sunk your costs, you've hired your staff, you've bought your fabrics. If you, and let's say like all of that combined costs you a hundred dollars. If you sell 50 pieces, then your cost per piece sold is $2. But if you sell 100 pieces, your cost per piece sold is $1, right? And so like 
basically, I mean, staying alive as a factory manager, especially because your your margins are so small, depends on sort of keeping your orders and your capacity in equilibrium. And the problem is, is that as a factory manager, you have very little information about the orders that you're going to get, that you're going to get. And that goes back to sort of what I was talking about before with like the forecasting and things like that. So when you don't know how, you know, what kind of orders you're going to get and how many pieces you're going to be asked to make, well, the only way to cope with that is to have a capacity that's cheaply expandable and contractible. And so, so that you can like match your capacity to your order volume because you have no idea what's coming. And so what does that do? Well, that creates the incentive to subcontract. That creates the incentive to to outsource. That creates the incentive to put people on short-term contracts. And what does that do? Well, that makes your supply chain longer, right? Because suddenly now, instead of dealing with one supplier, that supplier is now subcontracting, effectively passing that risk down to someone else who's probably doing the same thing, passing that risk down to someone else. And your supply chain gets longer and longer and your lead time gets longer and longer. And when your lead time gets longer and longer, it gets harder and harder to predict consumer demand. What are people going to buy? And when that gets harder and harder to predict, well, then chances are you make some wrong guesses, you make some wrong estimates, you make, you know, and you end up with products that you can't sell, that people don't want to buy. And so it would be in everybody's, if financial risk were shared, you would see a contracting of the supply chain. And you would see a seriously smaller number of players involved in that. And you would see much shorter lead times with a much, you know, a much better ability to predict, you know, what you should actually make. But the thing is, doing that requires, you know, brands to have more inventory on their books, to assume more financial risk. And I think with sort of like, a lot of times, I think one of the big barriers to sort of getting brands to do that, even though I think in the medium term, it's in their best interest, is that we have a very short term and narrow understanding of shareholder obligations. And, you know, there's so much emphasis on these short term quarterly results. If you say, oh, you need to put more capital on the line or you need to put more money on the line, that's a pretty hard sell with the sort of understanding of shareholder obligations that we sort of commonly see, which is ridiculous because in the end, it doesn't benefit shareholders either if the planet is on fire, you know? Right. Well, and if the whole thing <laughs> is unsustainable, it will catch up to those who are profiting off of it eventually, even if that mm-hmm. time horizon is really long. So Kim, you've talked a bit about the ability of brands to shirk responsibility, particularly financial responsibility and the distribution of risks throughout the supply chain. And I think that's particularly relevant for brands that are not vertically integrated. Whereas if you you have an organization that's vertically integrated through their business model, they're inherently required to take on more risk because they're managing their own inventory. But in the case of brands that aren't, we're curious to know if you have examples of organizations um, that are doing an interesting job at looking at how to disrupt the relationships and supply chains to move the needle toward a more equitable and equal balance between brands and manufacturers? Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question because maybe I'll speak first to like how we manage this within the factory that I worked for, but then also sort of a little bit more on a macro level. I mean, the CEO of of the company that I worked for, kind of his position is, is that basically, 
you know, as long as you have a huge brand and a small supplier, an equal relationship is impossible. And as a result of that, what he was sort of, you know, the the factory that I was, or the group that I was working for, their strategy was to basically work less and less with these big luxury brands and to start trying to find clients and customers who were sort of small to medium-sized businesses who were interested in sustainability and, you know, where we felt like there was an alignment on values, but also because you enter that relationship on much more equal footing. You know, you are, when you are dealing with two similarly sized companies, like as supplier and as brand, you know, we as supplier, like maybe we were their sole supplier, maybe there was one other supplier, but these were not big companies with huge in-house sourcing expertise or product development expertise. And sort of, I mean, to put it crudely, you as a supplier were less disposable, were less replaceable. And so that's sort of how the factory that I was working for has has coped with that question because our history really was producing for some of the, the biggest brands out there. And not only that, we were like the bottom of the the packing order. I mean, we were making like the soft eyewear accessories, like the cleaning cloths that were effectively considered packaging, you know? And so that was how we coped with it. I think like one at a sort of a more macro level, I think that there's some, like one of the things that gives me hope is, you know, I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic has been that a lot of suppliers have sort of felt like there's nothing left to lose (laughs) and that they've been more willing to sort of come out and share their perspective, but also connect with each other because the industry too, like is really cutthroat and suppliers, at least this was my experience, were really nervous about even opening the door to each other because it was like, you know, over less than half a cent, you know, you would lose your, you would lose your business. And so now I like one of the things that really gives me optimism is these suppliers coming together to advocate collectively because I think that that also that, that really has the power to disrupt. So the last thing I think in this space that I think is interesting and is I've heard like, especially from the larger manufacturers, I've heard sort of interest in moving production, quote unquote, onshore. I mean, it all depends where you are, but like say an Indian manufacturer opening up production in Los Angeles or a Vietnamese product, you know, manufacturer opening up production in Detroit and, but doing that in collaboration with the brands that they work for. And so these are factories that are sort of like jointly owned and the investment sort of comes from both sides. Now, I think like, again, what I've heard about these kinds of initiatives is like in very early stages, but I think that that's really interesting. Yeah. I feel like there's been a lot of examples of that in LA, Mm -hmm. especially in the denim industry. People coming back and wanting to just be closer to their clients, but also I I didn't realize about this shared kind of investment on the part of brands and the suppliers. I don't think that that's always true, but I've heard of a few Mm -hmm. cases where that's where that's happening. And I that I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. So on that note, Kim, kind of on your last word on the industry, we always ask one closing question, and it's what's the number one question? you are asking brand professionals, suppliers, all across the value chain, what's the number one question you're asking to really achieve real change? Yeah, that's a big question. 
to me, it has to do, I think it would be probably how to convince brands to take on their fair share of financial risk, because it's like, to me, that's the, if we talk about like a house, right? A sustainable business relationship between brand and supplier to me is like the, is the foundation and everything else sort of collapses if that's not in place. So that's sort of the question that I'm really interested in is, is what would that take? But, you know, maybe I sound like a broken record. (laughs) Not at all. And it's a record we'd listen to all day. Um, and our, our very last question we always ask our guests is who's an unspun hero that someone in the industry, and you probably have some really great examples of people that are doing the work on the ground for sustainability and maybe aren't getting the platform or the chance to speak on a podcast or be at a, on a panel uh, that you want to give a shout out to. Yeah. I mean, there's so many. <laughs> But I would do a shout out for um, Gori Sharma and Lavinia Garg, who are the co-founders of SUS, which is, stands for, I think it stands for Sustainable Style Speak. But it's they're the co-founders of this, this network of young professionals, activists, academics in India, who are working really hard to put forward a different sustainable fashion narrative. And the conversations that I have had with anyone sort of remotely affiliated with this network have just been some of the most refreshing and inspiring conversations that I've had. Great. Thank you. Well, we will look them up. I'm not familiar with them, but thank you, Kim. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It was wonderful to get to talk to you, Kim. It was. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks for letting me get technical. (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening to another episode of unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home huge thanks to this week's guest kim vanderveerd for sharing her perspective on the industry you can follow her at manufactured underscore podcast to join the conversation follow us on instagram at we are population or visit our website at wearepopulation.com Unspun is produced by Population, co-developed with Corey Cambridge, and mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.